Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the honor of introducing Mr. Matthew Shaw, fellow at the Global Counterterrorism Institute and doctoral candidate at the University of St. Mark and St. John. In both cases, pursuing novel research on the incel involuntary celibate subculture. His previous education includes degrees in social policy and criminology, both at the University of St. Mark and St. John. So much of this debate and so much of what we understand as a society, as a country about the insult movement is actually shaped by an even stronger ideological lens on, on our side, which just wants to put them in a little box, cast them away as pathetic, backwards, misogynistic people out there and away with it. And it's it's funny in a dark sense, it's horrible that I think that might actually be fueling more yeah. of the insult movement. The fact that we can't even take their concerns legitimately or seriously. We're seeing a rise in various extremisms, especially post-lockdown and post-COVID, the Capitol Hill. We see in society that the various forms of extremism are increasing, and we are increasing our awareness of them. But what we are not talking about is what is it that is turning Joe Bloggs public onto these extremist extremisms? What is it society that is doing it is driving people to go, Actually, I want to look at this. This is, I agree with this. Well, how have we let them get into that position? I think that's the conversation that, that, that that's where we need to move the narrative to. Absolutely. And I think for me, immediately, as a, as a sort of devil's advocate counter argument to what you're saying is that even with perfect understanding, even with the perfect truth at our disposal, I think there, there is a limit to how much we can, say, eradicate violence. And I think this is where it gets complicated. And, and, it, and for me, it's not simply an, an issue of uh, you know, males being more predisposed to violence than females. So I do think there might be a biological or psychological argument to be made there. But even if that was not the case, even if we have complete gender equality, even then, I think the problem is at the very root of humanity. If you look at the last however many thousands of millions of years uh, since the first Homo erectus was on the planet. Violence has been a constant, much more than peace and civility. If anything, us having this conversation, and this we're having, Matthew, is the outlier. The common thing would have been um, competition and violence. And so this is where it gets complicated as well, because there's an understandable fear and there's an understandable desire when we these horrible reports of mass violence or even small violence happen, whether it be insult or whether it be terrorist or whether it be whatever it is, the natural human instinct when, when something horrible like that on the news comes out is, firstly, even if we don't quite voice it, thank God I wasn't there that day. Right, it's a very natural reaction. There's, yeah. no, there's no shame in it. And number two is, you know, how can how can I stop that from happening in the future to myself, to my children, to my community, to my country, to my world, whatever it is. And even though that desire is completely understandable, I do. I'm wondering what your opinion on this might be, because I'm sort of sitting on the fence here, thinking, okay. If this insult movement is a new movement spawned by the social media, then surely there must be a new solution to it as well. And I'm torn between that and actually the superficial aspect is new, the social media, the Twitter, the, you know, this, the iPhone 13. 
But at the heart of this is something that we've never quite been able to shake off, which is people of Ireland, especially young men. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter which, what you want to throw at it, which ideology you'd like, there's going to be a recourse to violence. Of course, the, you know, this is nihilistic as well, you yeah, know. I think uh, the human love for violence is reflected in our popular culture. I mean, the last 10 years or so, the reemergence of horror films, for example, and violent music in, in heavy metal and everything like that, I think it's not something that we, that, that we are ever going to move away from. I think it's more about understanding and it and when you sort of relate the violence to the incel thing again it's sort of they, they talk in, in their own subreddits about women are often saying oh i want a bad boy and it's like well i'm i'm being a bad boy i'm giving them what they what they want and, and then that, that that that's not enough so you know it, it's almost it becomes i think they turn to violence as a last resort but is something that's never far away. They spend a lot of time on computers. They spend a lot of time online. You only need to turn on the TV at, at any time after nine o'clock, and the, you can find you can feed your violence. I don't know your, your your love for violence until six o'clock in the morning if of you course. want to. And I'm sure that's a concern for many parents, yeah, who might be seeing not only these horrific news reports, but the ease of access that their children uh, might be having. And and of course, you know, the question there is, you know, how do I stop my child from becoming, you know, inundated with these yeah. uh, with this ideology and, and doing violent, perhaps, uh, you know, committing uh, something they'll regret. And uh, this is as well a, a much broader and more more difficult subject of, you know, how do you raise your, your children properly? It's also accepting that, that there is social media that exists out of the media's depiction that social media is Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, like extremist networks tend not to use those platforms because they've been banned and they've migrated to other things, Roblox servers, Minecraft servers, and they're things that their parents will quite happily let their 10-year-old kids sit on for three hours in their bedroom on their own. But there's been plenty of studies that say that Roblox servers and Discord servers have already been used for radicalization purposes by the far right, for example. How to get parents to teach kids how to use social media properly when there's aspects of social media that they don't even understand themselves. And it's something yeah. that comes across in academia a lot is in terms of the, the negative effects of the internet, we need to educate people. But I, I always argue the question is, well, how do you educate a 30-year-old man who's working his job, running a family? He hasn't got time to go to school to learn about how different social media works. I remember the switch over from analog to digital TV and how long that took in Britain and trying to sort of have this conversation about actually social media isn't just Facebook. There is a whole other aspect that your kids use. They, they, they know how this works. We, we as adults and parents need to take some more responsibility and learn of about course. how these platforms work. Absolutely, I, I agree with you. Although I would, I would add there as well, Matthew. And you know, I might be, I might be wrong here. You'd be the uh, the expert judges as a father of uh, of two. But um, from my perspective, it's a big leap from a Minecraft server to a mass shooting. And I think a lot of things had to go wrong there. It wasn't just you know one day or two days. I mean, most likely it was a series of 
a lack of parenting that probably led to that that outcome. Although again, I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a clinical psychologist by any means, but but this is what I'm wondering as well. You know, how how do you go from mind crossover to to mass shootings, and where is the role of the parenting there, and and how much can we attribute to to many people that have failed at children, not just the the radicalization agent, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, that can be a, an imam at a mosque as much as it can be on a Minecraft server. But uh, surely that's that's just one piece in the puzzle that many other things had to go wrong as well. And, and is that being discussed when we talk about the insult movement? Is What were all the steps that were missing there? It's following the traditional radicalization pathway and... I don't think from the, the violent incidents that have been carried out, there has always been leakage. They don't ever tend to be something that is, is they don't tend to be spare of the moment things, um, which going back to the Jake Davison case, there's a lot, so a lot of aspects of that that suggest that it was a spare of the moment thing. When you look back more incel-related violence in the past, there's always been leakage before the use of manifestos and everything like that as well. Absolutely. The concept of female incels. Now, again, walking into this conversation as I did with the limited knowledge that I had, you can imagine how much of a shock it was to me to be reading this. Female incels, okay, they're now entering public consciousness. And my question is, the female incels, is this also a reaction to a falling attractive, quote-unquote, male population, of course, how that's defined is is a mystery to me. But is this more of a social trend of younger generations placing much less value on relationships, um, sex and families? I think from, from I've done limited research into to female and sales. And from what I can gather that they appear to be older. There's definitely not the violent tendencies, but there is still the discussions about sexual market value um what can i do to make myself more attractive um, and they share the same issues in terms of male in sales in which they feel that i do not meet the traditional picture of female beauty and i i'm getting left behind because um we, i'm not going to be a model i'm not going to, to do that sort of things but we're I think recently, in the last sort of five to 10 years, and social media and Instagram, I guess, are massive drivers in that. There's a lot of pressure on body image for women and for men. Um, and I think the the ease of online dating and the infinite sort of selection that it puts in your head, it, it's, it's very hard to, to feel rejected if you invest a lot of time into those sort of, sorts of platforms and you don't get anywhere. So they, they share similar aspects of the ideology except the move to violence. But then there's the other aspect that we are also starting to see now, which is the rise of the female dating strategy, which is about manipulating men to buy them more drinks. Should you date a man who doesn't have a five-figure salary, for example? And that's something that it, it's almost the the answer to the extreme incel portion that does move to violence there is an aspect of female that is moving towards doing extreme manipulation as opposed to this as opposed to physical violence and yet it's, it's odd because the original concept of the involuntarily involuntarily separate movement was was a woman the um the original blog was posted online called the involuntary celibate 
project by an author referred to in literature as Alana X in 1997, building off an idea that she originally had in 1993. And the space in its formative years was very accepting and was an equal split between male and female. But as time has progressed and we've seen the failure of pickup artists and a men going their own way movement, radical men's rights activists have taken over the platform and sort of pushed females to the outskirts. They, they, they still do exist, but it's a predominantly male space. But the issues that they discuss are very much the same. It's, there isn't, I guess there isn't the malice and there's, it's a more sort of controlled despondence, I guess, is, is the, the, the way to, to look at it. And right. the fact that they, they know that they don't fit the archetypal role of you will be a success. What can I do about it? And where the males sort of go, well, actually, if I'm just going to get left on and stood on, I'm going to make a stand. And sure. that's what causes the violence. There sure. doesn't seem to be the female drive to do that. And, and perhaps, you know, we're talking about two sides of the same coin, essentially. Yeah. But perhaps because there is less recourse to violence, as you suggest, on the female side of the insult movement, it gets less of that glorious media attention. Yeah. But that warps the public consciousness and narrative as well. I mean, to the extent that I've never heard of a female insult, and I had no idea that the uh, the originator, as you said, was was indeed a woman. So, uh, you know, if I'm a testament to anything, it's to the fact that as a society, we talk a lot about the insult movement, but we have yeah. very little actual understanding of it. And for me, I think that's that's a perfect analogy of I think one of one of the key issues that we're discussing when we discuss the insult movement, which is a breakdown of communication that are happening yeah. all over the place between the insults and the rest of society, between the rest of society and the insults, between the insults and the perpetrators, the victims, between everybody. There seems to me that one of the things that keeps popping up is this, the breakdown of communication on the one hand, and then the disenfranchisement that it causes on the other hand. And, you know, so I think this is really interesting. On the other hand, with the female insults that you were mentioning just before, those pull and push factors of our modern world that lead youth into taking this this decision and to be and, you know becoming part of this this movement i think those need to be taken a look at as well i mean surely a world in which we put more importance on material goods gains on on self not selfishness necessarily, but the individual as the center of, of all all importance in life. I think some of the the factors that that might lead to is, is a world of void, uh, certainly for the for the insult movement, in which they feel, okay, you know, how do we negotiate? How do we move around a, a world of voids? Yeah. And um, and unfortunately, some of those reactions might indeed end up being if the world is full of void and is meaningless and is full of self-serving yuppies and da 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 da, da you know, I'm going to take extreme measures as a as a sort of as a sort of reaction to that. And I wonder how much of that is explained on, on the one hand by the, that more violent side of the male side of the equation. But then on the other hand, as well, you have, as you said, the quieter female incels, perhaps not so violent, uh, but that feel that they've answered that lack of being able to correlate with, with the modern world in, in their own way. I think even when, not just even in terms of the public, I think from the the response of law enforcement to the Jake Davison um, 
incident as a whole, I think, yeah, the public, there's a lack of understanding at public, but even more worrying for, for me is there's a lack of understanding at a law enforcement level. Yeah, and that leads to my next point, really, which is, you know, all of this lack of understanding and lack of communication surely can't be good uh, when yeah. we're talking about policy, because ultimately that's where this discussion has to go which is, you know, we identify a problem, uh, we identify the risks. Now, how do we identify uh, the remedy, the solution to that? And I can sort of preempt uh, your answer here, which is unfortunately not good, but let me ask it to you anyway, Matthew, which is, you know, what kind of policy at the national level can we sort of envisage here of being able to address at least partly to remedy uh, the more, especially the more extreme lashings of the insult movement? And would you would you say that de-radicalization programs like Prevent might be effective? I always struggle with de-radicalization as, as a term because I don't think it's something that we can quantify yet. Um, in terms of the exit process for a lot of programs, it, it's very much of you have nothing to go on apart from what the perpetrator is telling you. So I worry. And in terms of prevent and its effectiveness in terms of incel, because pre prevent works almost in the pre-crime space, almost throughout the radicalization process, I think with incels, committing to that ideology is so quick that the radicalization process in terms of where prevent can make um, an interruption to the process, there isn't very much time for it to happen. Um, something that I would sort of like to see and something that I would like to have seen, especially in Plymouth with the kids going back to school post Jake Davidson is where in schools we have um, careers guidance teachers, that type of thing. Is it about time that um, school districts and councils had prevent officers going into the schools, having these discussions about how to use social media properly, what these different extremisms are, passing these abilities on to nurses, teachers, and in terms of the education process, we can, we're risking the relationships between teachers and students because students will not tell the teacher something because they don't want a prevent referral. I think somebody coming in and almost having a regional prevent officer to stay on top of what is happening in terms of extremism, because it can change every day. And the only thing that you're going to achieve by giving people out of date information or not the right information is making the problem worse. So that's something that I'd like to see more of the government doing is putting things in place to catch kids at that formative years from 13, 14 to 15, where they, yeah. they're getting more sexually aware, they're growing up, they're making sure. that change. Um, social media is becoming a lot bigger thing in their life. We've done it for 30 years, going and speak to children about what their careers, whether they should go to university. Why are we not now going, okay, we have various forms of extremism. We've got the far right, we've got Islamic, we've got mixed ideologies now under prevent as well. Well, how how do we deal with something as a, as a mixed ideology? We can't, we can't address a problem if that's what it's called. And I think what adds further complexity to the situation is that we're dealing with two highly complicated things. The first is social media yeah. and second is youth. <laughs> and I yeah. think at least it, when it comes to both of them, I have, I have no idea. But let's, let's try and, and dissect here for a second what either of these two spheres might mean. On the social media side, 
I tend to view it as a bit of a wild west where fake news is something we are aware of. It's, yeah. it, it is having real consequences, not only just fake news, but also disinformation. And as well, we have the company's profit. We yeah. had a lot of discussion over lockdown, especially about how uh, Facebook in particular, it, for example, has it's been altering its algorithm based on what it thinks you might find uh, you know, attractive enough to stay on the site for just a click longer that you know, the next advertisement comes in, right? So, so in between all of that, there is a, there's an important profit motive for these social media companies. And it's important not to forget that. Because I do think that is fuels into the picture here as well, If especially if we're going to be talking about a solution and how do you navigate around social media? It's not so easy uh, when you have algorithm geniuses who've worked out how to make you stay for longer and they don't you know, necessarily care that your child is uh, reading something that's true. That's never been what it's about. Anyway, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, youth what makes me think how complicated this is, is that, you know, when we're talking about youth, you may have some young people who might, for lack of a better term, dabble, all right, dabble in the uh, insult ideology and web pages and groups and, you know, hashtags and whatever it is. But there might not be any real danger. It might just be part of the learning process of being a rebellious teenager, of thinking you've got the answer to everything, of trying to be controversial for the sake of it, of whatever it is. And then by the time that these children get to university, you know, they start getting into other things and, you know, real life happens and you grow out of it, right? Um, I think that's the case for, for most young people, I should hope. Yes. Of course, the problem is that some, even from you know, families where, you know, the parents took a very active role and they went to school and et cetera, et cetera, they might get lost in it. The dabble might become getting lost in the ideology. And, and you know, these are, of course, the cases that we must be looking at. But I guess my, my question, Matthew, is in as far as the youth goes, you know, how do you separate the two? Is it possible? And how can we tell apart the stopping for a visit as opposed to this child is really at danger of getting lost in the, in the movement. I don't know if I've got the answer for that, and it's increasingly difficult because we know how inquisitive young minds are. Um, they, they may, for example, an algorithm on autoplay on YouTube, for example, people could get sucked in by the content and not be sucked in by the message. Really, really difficult one. I think that more needs to be done in, in terms of social media, but I think more needs parents and education establishments maybe need to take more responsibility in teaching people how to use the internet as, as for what it is. I think it, it's been, it's come out into the public and we've never really been shown how to use it properly. And I think that there is a period of education needed for everybody, I think. Of course. And it's changing so quickly. Yeah. So yeah. Just what social media is, is changing. YouTube is changing very quickly. Um, you know, the, the, the whole concept of the, uh, of the content creator, and this is increasingly how young people in the West, in the UK, are consuming media and the role figures that they're looking up to and, and the social media that they're using. And, you know, this goes back to the Wild West that I was mentioning before, yeah. because these content creators, who knows what they'll come up with, ever increasing, ever rapidly evolving strategies to capture the attention of young people. 
they, they almost become almost godlike to their sub- subscribers. And I'm wondering how much of that content might have, if not necessarily blatant examples of insult ideology, but little ones, a little misogynistic comment here and there, a little blaming of, of other people for it, but, you know, whatever it is, little yeah. bits of, uh, you know, little tracks that they leave behind, which lead young people into, yeah. you know, taking further steps and, and yeah. digging into, you know, I wonder how much that's a part of it and how do you regulate that? I don't know. I think it's very dangerous anyway. I think this comes back to when we were talking about things like when you go looking for statistics in terms of male suicide, for example, doing a Google search on, on that sort of thing, you have to be very sure what you hit on that first page of Google because there is twisted versions of every, everything that you want to find. And it, there's a responsibility on, on you as a user, I guess, to make an informed choice. And we're not giving people the tools to make an informed choice, I think is a problem. It's interesting, Matthew, because I remember growing up as high-speed internet became a thing for a lot of us. The promise that it held was, yeah. it was like, <laughs> you know, you went from having a whatever, in, in my case, when I was much younger, uh, t- television, right? Just the, the telly, that's what we had, to all of a sudden, you know, you had stuff like Google or Ask Jeeves or whatever it was back in the day, the possibilities of the internet were limitless. And now in this conversation with you today, you know, the words that I'm writing down here, danger everywhere. Yeah. It's kind of strange because I I grew up at the same time as you and I remember that the celebrities and the hassle they used to get from the paparazzi. And we still talk about that now. And then we, we take off our traditional media glasses and put our social media glasses on and it's, it's just people are posting on social media so they essentially get the paparazzi following them around <laughs> and then we of course celebrate that by our young people who then aspire to have all the followers and to do that you need to fit the mold and that then all feeds into well i don't fit the mold well i've got a story that i'm like that as well how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go it's like a fragmentation, right? And on the one hand, you think, great, you know, all this new representation for, you know, niche uh, interests and da-da-da-da-da. And that's great on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's such a failing towards yes. young people that we that we have as a society in being able to, to step in when this content that they find online leads them uh, down very dark, uh, twisted pathways. And I think that's, that's the tragedy of it all, isn't yes. it? It's not necessarily social media, but rather the failings of social media that play a large part in um, in the unrestrained aspects of, of the insult movement and the worst cases coming out of it. Which leads me to my next point, Matthew. Of course, the, a lot of the focus that we have, the reason that I wanted to sit down with you today, of course, coming into this conversation is, okay, there's this insult movement. We've heard on the news how there's people dead. How do we stop the insult movement as if it's a bad thing? But I'm wondering, after a conversation today, seeing that, yes, there's dangers there, like like in anything, but is it necessarily all a rotten structure? Or do you think, in a way, that there's, there's anything in the insult movement that can be rescued there, or that is at least not dangerous and understandable? I think there are, there are aspects of there that we need to look at without our violence-associated lenses on. Because across most forms of 
people turn to extremism because they feel like they're being left behind socially or they're feeling like they're being isolated. Well, th th this has been going on for years and people are still isolated. And I think if there's one thing that one positive aspect that we can take from the incel is right, we know that this is a problem now. There is plenty of people talking about it and we know what happened. If we leave these people to just deal with it amongst themselves, what, what we need to do as practitioners or rehabilitators or even as the public is sort of become more aware of, of the signs if somebody is sort of withdrawing from society, if they are sort of starting to talk about political aspects or ideologies that aren't reflective of the norms, then we need to question them and we need to challenge them. But in order to do that probably we need to, to, to reframe what what the push and pull factors towards extremism is. And not everyone that is an extremist is poorly educated or from a poor background. Some of them are highly educated and it's the 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 problems in the higher levels of structure and government and policy that draw to extremism. I think everybody can be vulnerable to it. It's not just the lower echelons of society. And I think that's something that we can take from the incel movement is actually, I, I, I'm, I'm a male, I've hold my life is fairly successful, but I can still identify with various things that they say. I mean, this conversation that we've had just now has been very mind-opening for me because I very much came with the you know, just whatever I was handed down from the, the larger social cues at work about what the insult movement is. And through speaking with you today, I've now come to appreciate how it's a lot more complicated. And there's a lot of social failings that are fueling this movement. There's a lot of concerns that the insult movement is raising that actually I think are in some ways, if not necessarily legitimate, but I do understand why they're taking place. And I do think, you know, this is very much a reactionary movement. If you see people talking in the online spaces about the issues that are relevant to you, and we'll just use Jordan Peterson as an example, when you see the public reaction that he's getting, the hatred that he gets, you know, it, it forces you even more into that corner. You're not going to go and have these conversations if, if highly regarded intellectual people are just getting told no, that they're wrong and that they're misogynistic. And somebody who is already lacking in self-confidence and a lack of self-worth, you're just going to internalize those. Things. And I think there, there's general truth that if you're, if you're not able to have a discussion where you, you don't necessarily agree with the person saying, standing next to you, but you do give them a space and you do at least yeah. give them an opportunity to, if you can't do that, then the problem gets only worse because the, the viewpoints are going to be cemented without any kind of, it's like an echo chamber without any kind of chance of a middle ground being reached. And I think that's not just a problem of the insult movement, but is a problem that I see happening across many different areas of life, uh, not just terrorism, but the left-right divide generally in the world today. And I think the basis of that actually is, as you suggest, that there's a high moral ground intellectual elite that decides that this is the viewpoint that is politically correct and it's the only truth and if you're outside of that you're wrong and you won't have a platform and you're dangerous you should just go and change your views or just disappear or something or even worse is the viewpoint that all incels are they're all loonies 
They have nothing valuable to add, they're completely misguided, and they have nothing worthwhile to say. And again, I'm wondering, you know, does that just make the problem, uh, the divide worse? It's one of my personal worries when I conduct research for myself. Um, like I said before, I'm, this may be a research area that I look in for my PhD, and it's being very aware because I don't want to sort of come across as, as an advocate for incel because what they do is abhorrent and it's wrong. Well, there are aspects of what they discuss that are relevant and the focus on the violence and the wrong thing is, is doing a disservice to the actual driving issues. And it's trying to, I, I find as a male, trying to discuss incel and sort of say, well, actually, I agree with some parts of it. I, I know that by saying that, I open myself up to this sort of abuse. Well, how can you side with them? And I'm like, well, I'm not siding with them. I'm not saying what they think is right. I'm not saying that their ideology is right. But what I am saying is I can appreciate the fact that they are feeling rejected and let down and trodden on. Because as a male, I, I can see it as well, you know? I think for me, fundamentally, you know, my interest in this, like my interest in, in most things in life, has to do with understanding something. Yeah. You know, that's something that I've always wanted to to strive for is I'm not so much a person that uh, has an interest in casting uh, moral judgments. Uh, it's just not in my blood. Unfortunately, social media is not the same. No, I guess, well, <laughs> I, mean, I understand why, you know, the, the, the push factor and, the, you know, the feel-good factor, but yeah. I guess I, I'm just more built up with a sociological mindset. I I intensely enjoy studying the crazy little things that humans do. I, I find human life is fascinating and from my own perspective. So I do understand as well where you're coming from. I find the conversation that we had today mind-opening and truly interesting. And it's not about judging or, or coming down with a hammer and, and cursing and setting aside and labeling and whatever it is. There's plenty of people who can do that. I think the more interesting thing that we were able to achieve in our conversation today is taking a look at what this is, this, this so-called insult movement, being able to study it from all the different angles, where it came from, what it does, how it's shaped, uh, who are the members that populate it, how were they populated, how were they routed, how are they derouted. That's a different kind of angle, yeah. and it's a more studious, it's more academic kind of angle. And I believe that it, if there's any hope of as a society, being able to tame this movement, or at the very least, being able to stop its wildest excesses, it has to do with being able to understand a problem truthfully and clearly. And the only way to do that is if we de-ideologize, if I can invent yeah. the word, the conversation. You know, So it's not so much about, as you say, taking sides, but rather it's about how do we get to the bottom of it? Yeah, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had where you almost um, disassociate the characters from what you're talking about and, and the genders and everything like that and actually break it down and talk about the real issues. I think that because gender is such a touchy subject at the moment, just in general, it's very easy there to turn around. Yes. It, it's it's yeah. a male-only problem and, and it's all bad, but it, it, it really isn't. And I think... Um, as, you, as we spoke about earlier on, the, the arrival in the public conscience of, oh, actually, there, there, are, there, is, there are females that subscribe to this as well. 
it just adds another layer of uh, complexity to it all. Absolutely. And it's truly, it's a fascinating topic, Matthew, yeah. and not only just for your PhD, which which I wish you the best in, but also just generally. I mean, I think this is very much a 21st century topic. It touches, as you said earlier on during our conversation, it holds up a mirror to society and it touches on so many different aspects of, of life in, in 21st century Western world, perhaps the global world. And I think that this is really where it's at, because we can get to the bottom of this, then I think we're getting to the bottom. I think half the problem with, with when you look at Intel is when we talk about things like Islamist extremism or the far, far right, etc., it's very easy for us to point and sort of say it's, it's them. There are aspects of the Intel message and ideology their belief system that are present in us as western people and it's forcing us to turn around and look at ourselves and we haven't really had to do that very very because we've always been able to say no it's narcissism or no it's Islamic, Islamist extremism is it's, it's something else it's not a problem of the west's doing well incel for me shares a lot more similarities with western culture than everything else. Not only that, it's presenting us with something that for a lot of people, we thought we would cast away. Misogyny, it reminds us of the darkest days of medieval history or whatever. And there's many of us, myself included, who cannot wait to see the day when we're over this bridge or we can all treat each other respectfully. But we're not there yet. We're not by a long shot in so many ways. It's almost like it brings forward these uncomfortable truths that we have to deal with these these divides in society. We like to think that the working boys man club is a thing of the 20th century. And unfortunately, whilst they seem to have disappeared a little bit from the public conscious, they, they do still exist. And we have plenty of, for example, male dominated factory work, for example. And, and you know, that, that, the, the misogynistic views of what people found funny in 1970 and stuff. People have been working in these factories for 30 years. They haven't disappeared. It's nothing about them so much anymore. Where this is taking place is social media yeah. and, and the youth. It's not in a factory making hammers. A modern twist to it all, isn't there? You could argue that, but in terms of intel perpetrators, there are a lot that are, well, not a lot, but there are some that are, uh, late 30s, early 40s, and they do have that sort of 15, 20 years of experience in the workplace that the people that are carrying out aren't, aren't always young college kids straight from school or straight from uni. There, there are some that have experiences of working. So just to assume that it would be a young person's issue, I think it is also a bit unfair because there is plenty of evidence that suggests that this is something that is relevant to old, old, the older generations as well. And when you look back to man's club culture that was so prevalent in 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and relating to the Jake Davidson incident with where he works, people work in there and worked in there for 30, 40 years. And those predominantly male spaces where that misogyny that was so evident then is still there. It's just not talked about. And now we'd add to that that the transmission that's taking place there mm. between that older, perhaps, uh, mindset 
of the yeah. you know, the traditional misogyny towards a new generation. That transmission is taking place over social media. Yeah. But then there's the other factor as well of the social media that compounds the effect. It doubles it because you have the echo chamber and you have the the Reddit forums or yeah. whatever it is that just make what would before would have been at least a visible transmission into an anonymous, silent and potentially very quickly radicalizing then the worst uh, things that come out of yeah. that. It's all happening sort of under a blind eye. Those predominantly male spaces are, can be held up as a driving factor. If you are not the archetypal good-looking guy and you're going into work every Monday and all of your colleagues are talking about all their sexual exploits over the weekend and you do not have that, why am I not doing this? And this is, gonna, this is what then what drives you onto the social media echo chambers. So it, it's a tough one. It can get you. It can get you in both spaces. It can get you in yeah. the real world space and in the in the online world. Yeah. And I think we're not. We are almost not talking about its effects in the real world. We're, we're, we're saying it's a lot. It's driven a lot by online, and I think that's something that we're applying to extremism in general. That. Absolutely. The online space has driven radicalization beyond anybody's wildest dreams, but there is still things that take place in our real world, working day-to-day lives that, that can drive people towards these ideologies as well. Of course. It's a complex mix of factors, Matthew. Yeah. I think that's uh, in the short summary of of a conversation running over an hour here is that it is a complex subject. and And I think there's a lot of ignorance. And yeah. so this is why it's so important for us to be sat here today talking about it. And of course, uh, for you to continue your work studying this, doing a, a PhD and doing this again, to be able to spread the word yeah. and to be able to talk about it more, because that must be a part of the solution, at least yeah. in, uh, in reducing that ignorance. The thing with this ideology and the immediate threat perception within the public is the, the perpetrators look like me and you. They look like us. Usually, if it was somebody from the far right, we'd go, you know, he, he fits the stereotypical of a, a Nazi skinhead, for example. Sure. Yeah, right. If we're following, if somebody's a Muslim and he is, you can tell he's a, a Muslim, you can t- just tell, right? If this one, you're saying, this could, this could be anyone. This could be you're, you're the person that you work next to at school. You, would, you wouldn't know. And that's that's why it's so scary. The, the the lone wolf nature of the attacks, the fact that it, it could be the person next door to us. They don't have to be in a refugee. They don't have to experience. They don't have to experience conflicts being a victim of somewhere else. This is something that is affecting me and you. And as they say, you know, there's a, there's an older aspect of this, but the newer aspect, the movement aspect of it, that's something the world is going to have to contend with. Yeah. And we're not looking at manifesto. We're not looking at stated outcomes. We're not looking at a nation state wanting to be formed. It's not any kind of traditional sort of a violent movement that we've had before. Again, this fuels the complexity of, of the issue that we're talking about, the insult movement. And I think we've done a great job, Matthew, of, uh, in, in the hour and a half year that, um, of, of discussing these complexities. But starting to round off our discussion here for a second, I wanted to just briefly mention for my last bit here, one of the things you had mentioned earlier during our discussion, which has to do with when you're talking about the insult movement and how it's reacting to these different push and pull factors taking place. Immediately, I was thinking in an earlier podcast, I was discussing the subject of the liberal state and how it 
always seems to be at, at war with somebody or something. This is specifically relating to the United States sort of foreign policy. And we were speaking about the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and all the other wars before and after that. And one of the ideas that, that was thrown in that discussion was this idea of the, the liberal machine creating its own periphery that it then feels a missionary zeal to go and conquer. So the idea of Ouroboros comes to mind. So sort of it's an ancient symbol of a snake eating its own tail. And I want to bring that sort of into the discussion here today by making that analogy of saying, you know, can we also view this, the insult movement, its beginnings, its, its ends, its all of it, as something that happens on the outskirts of the neoliberal order? How do you place the two? I would place um, the incel movement subculture directly as a result of the neoliberalist approach in government recently with the whole sort of, if you want something, go learn, invest, buy the books, train, educate yourself. Once you've done that, you can go and get it. It's yours. Go on and rule the world. Well, it doesn't work like that. There, there, there's 10 people doing exactly the same thing that you're doing. Um, but we continue to push this. If you do what we tell you and do all the right steps, you will get to the end goal. What we're seeing now is actually people are doing this. They're doing all the steps that they're taking and they're not getting those end goals. And they're going then, well, I've done everything that you told me now and I'm being left behind. What what do I do? Well, again, the cycle then again, it just starts again, doesn't it? So, well, maybe if you tried to change your diet, let's do that. And we start that cycle. Well, now I've changed my diet and my, my sex life still hasn't got any better. So how, how do I go from that? And I think that in terms of relating that back to incel, it works very well with the pickup artist sort of scene that was on VH1 and MTV at the turn of the 21st century, where, oh, if you can't get a girlfriend, um, the, the early form of the self-help guru that, that we're seeing now, it's like, if you can't get a girlfriend, buy this book talk to them like this wear a purple hat etc etc and when those things don't work people are going right now what do i do i've bought into your rhetoric of everything that's going to make things better and it's not and now i'm hitting the wall and i'm frustrated and that is what's fueling the turn to to at least the aggression or getting involved in discussions or ideologies that that can be and in, in, in dangerous real-world events, to be honest. Sure. The powerlessness and uh, yeah. the feeling of, oh, I've done everything you've asked me to. Why am I still broke, fat, unhappy, middle-aged? Yeah. <laughs> we had it at high school. Everybody was like, oh, you need to go and get a degree, you know, in this process of, as, oh, obviously a bit older. But it's like, I've finished my honest degree and it's like, actually, now that's not good enough because we've told everybody that you need, you need to go and get an honest degree to be considered right to now. It's, I've got to go and get a master's and it's like well what if that's not good enough <laughs> what do I do after that and I think we're not we're not picking up the people that are falling by the wayside I think we see eye to eye on this the vastness and the complexities and the difficulty that fuels into this movement. And there's not any one thing you can latch on to. A mass marketing society, to a lack of social media regulation, to parenting, and to a million other things in between that we've talked about today. We've been doing a pretty good job of uh, sort of dissecting how it all comes together. But where does it go from here? Do you see signs that we are beginning to understand and tackle 
and have a good chance of stopping the, the wildest excesses, the news headlines or what the mass shootings? Or do you think, actually, we're not getting this at all? I think we're at the, at the risk of making things worse before they get better. We've raised awareness of an issue that we don't understand. And when people have discussions about things that they don't understand fully and completely, that doesn't tend to have any benefit. It only tends to make the situation worse. And I think that that's that's where we are at the moment. I think things are starting to change, but it's going to be a very, very, very slow process because it, it doesn't fit the media framing and turning things like framing and government policy and stuff, that, that takes a lot of time. And in that that period of time, whilst things may be changing, an example for would be getting the online harms white paper of government has taken nearly two years. Um, in that time, I think the frequency of this type of incident, I think it will increase, unfortunately, before it gets better, before mm. we start to see any sort of reduction. Well, it's more useful to finish on an accurate note. And for that, Matthew, I want to thank you for the conversation that we've had today. I know these are difficult issues. They're not always happy, giddy, sunny things we're dealing with. A complicated, confusing, disorienting movement here that's affecting many people today. So these things can be challenging, but I wanted to thank you more than anything for helping me through my ignorance on the subject. So I, I am thankful for that. It's been a nice opportunity, really. I've had conversations in university about it in terms of coursework that I did for a master's, and you always seem to get the same sort of, no, it is, it's the lonely man in the corner, and no, there's a lot more to it than that, and if we are going to refer to them as the lonely man in the corner, all we're going to do is make it worse. So getting the opportunity to talk about it and say that, hey, it's about more than what the newspapers are telling us, these conversations need to be had. Thank you so much for joining us at MI Cynic. Hopefully we'll be talking again soon. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.